sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about another U.S. delegation uh, being sent to Taiwan amidst a quote unquote trade talks uh, between uh, Washington and Taiwan and what that's going to mean vis-a-vis China. Also going to discuss uh, a new bill introduced by far right figure Marjorie Taylor Greene that is basically an attack on transgender youth. And we're going to be touching on how different media platforms uh, basically give a voice to Alex Jones for their own purposes. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. How do you struggle for liberation while in captivity? This was a question that was faced by George Jackson, and his life gives us the answer. George Jackson was imprisoned with W.L. Nolan, who guided Jackson to study the works of many revolutionaries, including Karl Marx, V.I. Lenin, Mao Zedong, Franz Fanon, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, and others. Nolan, Jackson, and other prisoners dedicated themselves to raising political consciousness and organizing prisoners in the California prison system. They led study sessions on radical philosophy and convened groups like the Third World Coalition and started the San Quentin Prison Chapter of the Black Panther Party. When both Nolan and Jackson were moved to Soledad Prison, Nolan filed a class action lawsuit on human rights violation against the prison's superintendent, Cletus J. Fitzharris, and prison guards, and accused them of knowingly exacerbating existing social and racial conflicts through direct harassment and in ways not actionable in court, including repressive prison tactics of filing false disciplinary reports and leaving black inmate cells unlocked for racist Aryan assaults and placing fecal matter or broken glass in the food served to new Africans. Nolan feared for his life after he filed the lawsuit, and he was right to. Four months after he filed his petition, he and another black prisoner who had signed it were dead after prison guards staged a confrontation between black prisoners and Aryan Brotherhood inmates in the recreation yard of Soledad Prison. Cleveland Edwards and Alvin Miller were also killed along with Nolan and a white prisoner was wounded. The black men inside Soledad demanded that the guards, particularly the former military marksman O.G. Miller, who fired the shots, who killed the three men, be investigated and arrested. The Monterey County District Attorney, however, made a televised announcement, which the black prisoners saw, that stated the deaths of black men doing civil rights reform inside prison were ruled probable justifiable homicide by a public officer in the performance of his duty. One hour after the announcement, a white guard, John Mills, was thrown over an upper tier in the Y wing. He died in the prison hospital without regaining consciousness, but without any evidence The prison authorities charged George Jackson, Fleta Drumgo, and John Cluchet with the death of Mills. The three became known as the Soledad brothers. So, of course, now George Jackson was a marked man, too. 
Later, we learned from George's father, Lester Jackson, in a televised interview that his eldest son, George, confided to him that prison guards had starved and denied him clean drinking water for three days and that George had told his younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, in late July 1970 that guards had promised to kill George on August 10th. That's why on August 7th, 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson executed the raid on the Marin courthouse to demand the release of the Soledad brothers and to save his brother's life, during which his own life was taken by prison guards. And although Jonathan could not save his brother from the fascist prison system, his efforts to do so had an enormous impact on George. During the following year, Jackson wrote Blood in My Eye, a standard for revolutionary study today, but it was heavily influenced by his brother, Jonathan. And Jackson also dedicated Soledad Brother, the prison letters of George Jackson, to his brother, saying of him, quote, to the man-child, tall, evil, graceful, bright-eyed, black man-child, Jonathan Peter Jackson, who died on August 7, 1970, courage in one hand, assault rifle in the other, my brother, comrade, friend, the true revolutionary, the black communist guerrilla in the highest state of development. He died on the trigger, scourge of the unrighteous righteous, soldier of the people, to this terrible man-child and his wonderful mother, Georgia B., to Angela Y. Davis, my tender experience, I dedicate this collection of letters to the destruction of their enemies, I dedicate my life. But George Jackson was still a marked man in the California prison system, and on August 21st, 1971, he was shot to death by a tower guard inside San Quentin Prison, where he had been transferred before going to trial. The claim was that Jackson had hidden a gun inside a wig he was wearing, had taken hostages and killed three prison guards and two trustees in an attempt to escape. But as James Baldwin succinctly observed at the time, no black person will ever believe that George Jackson died the way they tell us he did. Reading the account from the prison of Jackson's murder to this day, it still makes no sense. And we still don't believe it because we know it is a lie. George Jackson said in Blood in My Eye, as a slave, the social phenomenon that engages my whole consciousness is, of course, revolution. Revolution should be love-inspired. Love is what inspired George Jackson to embody how a prisoner becomes a dragon in the way that Ho Chi Minh espoused. Love was the alchemy that transformed George Jackson in the way that Che Guevara described how a black prisoner can engage in an alchemy that turns a slave into a dragon. George Jackson is why we observe Black August every year, commemorating fallen freedom fighters of the Black Liberation Movement, calling for the release of political prisoners in the United States, condemning the oppressive conditions of U.S. prisons, and emphasizing the continued importance of the Black liberation struggle. Love of liberation for the people is what fuels the dragon. So we observers of Black August commit to study, fast, train, fight, becoming dragons in our own right, continuing in the struggle for liberation for all oppressed people as George Jackson, the dragon, taught us to struggle for liberation while he was in captivity. Long live the dragon.
Follow Luke Ma Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Ma Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by K.J. No, a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace and a senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And KJ, uh, Republican Governor Eric Holcomb is making a a trip to Taiwan. I believe he's actually there right now uh, as part of another uh, U.S. delegation to Taiwan, something that continues to really rile the uh, Chinese government, which views these delegations as uh, a serious provocation. And this is the third such uh, trip that uh, U.S. officials have taken, I believe, just this month. Uh, with the first one, of course, being the uh, trip of uh, U.S. Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, which she undertook despite the uh, countless warnings from the uh, uh, Chinese government. And that one was followed by a delegation led by Senator Ed Markey. And uh, reportedly, uh, Governor Holcomb met with um, uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday. And, you know, uh, KJ, maybe this is... uh, Uh, sort of an obvious question, but it's just strange to see why these U.S. officials keep making these trips to Taiwan, knowing uh, how much uh, of a provocation this is seen by China. I mean, it's almost as if Washington wants to court uh, uh, an open conflict with China, as if it wants to take its new Cold War with Beijing uh, uh, into a hot war. But I mean, how are you seeing this uh, series of delegations uh, playing out here? And what are the potential implications? Well, what's clearly happening is a salami slicing of the one China policy. The one China policy says that there's only one China. The PRC is the legitimate government uh, of China. And Taiwan is a region or a province of uh, this China. Now, by continually sending in official and quasi-official and high-level visits to Taiwan and engaging in trade talks and multiple uh, types of legislation designed to de facto establish uh, Taiwan Island as a sovereign, uh, independent state. Uh, the U.S. is provoking China's red lines, and these red lines are a trigger for potential war. Why is the U.S. doing this? There are many different theories about it. You know, uh, on the most surface level, it's a kind of a distraction from U.S. domestic affairs. But in another sense, there's a I would say there's a sector of the U.S. ruling class which sees that this is the United States' last and best chance to, you know, initiate a war, which they see as the only way of preventing China's ascendancy. They cannot compete with China uh, on a fair, on a level playing ground. They need to instigate some kind of uh, kinetic war and then use that as a way to delegitimate and then to rally other countries to uh, sanction and attack China. I think that's uh, 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 some of the calculation that's happening. Yeah, KJ, and, you know, Governor Eric Holcomb, uh, who is leading this delegation, uh, 
is involved in uh, these trade talks, and they claim, at least he claims, that this is, you know, about uh, economic exchanges, particularly in semiconductors, which I think is kind of noteworthy because the Biden administration just kind of quietly passed this legislation uh, that uh, allocates new money, new spending for new semiconductor um, facilities being built in the United States in an effort to compete with China. And Taiwan does factor into this because Taiwan actually is the world's leading manufacturer of semiconductors. But, you know, rather than deal with uh, trade issues in a diplomatic way, observing the one China policy, it seems that the business of the U.S. government is being used to wage uh, this ideological, and as you point out, uh, leading to a kinetic war against China using Taiwan. So, I mean, do you th- do you feel that the the response from China is incredibly measured um, because? They're just much more interested in a diplomatic response or a diplomatic solution to these issues than U.S. officials are. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I think the first point to make is that U.S. has been waging de facto hybrid war against China since at least 2012, certainly since 2018. And this looks uh, to, this looks as war in the information domains, in economic domains, in the political domain, in the legal domains, lawfare, uh, uh, etc. So this is an ongoing kind of a full spectrum war. And this is yet another manifestation or aspect of that. China's response, as you point out, has been very, very measured. Uh, you know, this negotiation between the U.S. Office of Trade and uh, and ta- Taiwan Island, you know, has to do with 11 trade areas, which are, you know, pretty significant. Uh, and uh, for China to largely, uh, you know, hold and, you know, hold, hold its tongue uh, and to bide its time shows that they are taking the upper hand. That said... Uh, China, time is on China's side. It does not need to engage or react to these uh, provocations, which is really what these are about. Uh, the only uh, main concern here is that essentially what the U.S. is trying to do is trying to reestablish Taiwan Island as an outpost of U.S. empire. It only exists by virtue of the United States. It only exists, it has existed as an outpost of U.S. empire until 1972. And then there was a gray area until 1979, at which point the U.S. switched its uh, relations to China. But it is not a sovereign state. There is no country on the planet that recognizes Taiwan Island as an independent sovereign state. That includes the Taiwanese authorities themselves, they see themselves as, uh, you know, the legitimate government of all of China. And so by the U.S. continually salami slicing, what they're doing is they're trying to do what they've done with Japan and South Korea and now with Taiwan, is that they're trying to create uh, a forced projection platform against China right up against its belly, 100 
uh, miles away from the Chinese mainland, uh, and they want to use Taiwan for this purpose. So any notion that there's some idea of uh, independence or sovereignty, this is absolutely, uh, you know, beside the point. Uh, Taiwan is and has been a client state, and they want to remilitarize it as a U.S. outpost, a force projection platform, and that is what the Chinese object to. Yeah, and you've mentioned this uh, kind of salami slicing of the one China policy, KJ, and I tend to agree that that's the case with, I mean, with the U.S. already sort of uh, uh, setting itself up to take this stand of, you know, quote unquote, strategic ambiguity and and, and to the extent that it, it kind of recognizes the one China policy on the one hand, while on the other hand sort of res- reserves the right to, I mean, basically violate uh, the policy at its pleasure. And it does seem to be sort of chipping away at that through these actions. And you've touched on this a little bit, but I was hoping you could say more about how is it that um, formal trade relations between the U.S. and Taiwan would uh, further undermine uh, the one China policy? What is it about that that sort of goes against uh, the spirit and letter of that agreement? Well, I think the first thing is that uh, they are trying to um, uh, kind of separate uh, Taiwan Island out uh, from uh, from its trade with China. They're trying to create incentives for Taiwan Island to trade less and eventually uh, decouple from the Chinese economy. As it stands right now, a very large percentage of Taiwan's GDP actually comes from trade with uh, the People's Republic of China, and uh, certainly it is its largest trade partner. And so by creating new initiatives and by uh, creating new areas or sectors of quote-unquote cooperation, rather than, say, you know, semiconductors, they're trying to decouple uh, Taiwan Island. And this is kind of a long-term plan uh, so that if China does, uh, you know, take economic measures of Taiwan Island, then they will have already started the process of insulation so that they can proceed further with this de facto quote-unquote independence, which, as I said, once again, is is a way of rendering back into full client status under the United States. Yeah, and KJ, you know, I, I think when we have these conversations, we always kind of talk about the U.S. and uh, China, you know, either of those responses. But I don't think we talk too often about uh, the government in Taiwan and and the president uh, uh, on the island, Taiwan is, you know, allowed to have their own governing structure, which seems to me doesn't seem to be all that repressive uh, to me. So, I mean, it seems that these trips cannot be done. These little diplomatic junkets that the U.S. has carried out in violation of the one China policy couldn't be carried out unless the Taiwanese government allows them to do it. So what what is their role in this? Well, their role is, you know, is both facilitation, invitation, and very often sponsorship. In that sense, uh, Taiwan Island has a function not unlike that of Israel, in that it is, you know, both, uh, you know, uh, fraudulently claiming full sovereignty uh, at the same time that it is, uh, you know, lobbying and funding and pressuring, uh, you know, domestic political affairs to its uh, advantage. But 
the key thing to point out once again is that the vast majority of people on Taiwan Island want to maintain the status quo. They want to keep things as they are. They do not want, quote unquote, this client status of independence. Uh, they don't want to, uh, you know, disrupt relations with China. Uh, half a million of them live on, uh, on you know, China uh, on on the mainland. They study. They do business. They travel, and uh, all of this is largely put into. Uh, motion by the Quisling DPP, the uh, Democratic, uh, no, they're neither Democratic nor Progressive, but the DPP is uh, this kind of Quisling party, not unlike the LDP in Japan, which wants to assert itself and purely through an act of assertion that it is somehow separate and independent from the People's Republic of China. And it's doing this because it knows that it does not have the legislative votes, nor does it have the popular support to actually declare independence. The Taiwanese, uh, the ROC constitution says that Taiwan is a part of China. And the DPP, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, is trying to do a runaround, a constitutional uh, amendment by claiming that it is de facto uh, already independent, which it is not. It's a client state of the United States. And then by doing this continual salami slicing in the economic, diplomatic, uh, and other spheres. Yeah, and also, KJ, I'm wondering how you're considering this, um, these ongoing provocations from the U.S. towards China in the context of broader geopolitical trends. I mean, namely the ongoing uh, uh, war in Ukraine, which uh, does not appear to be going the way that the U.S. and the West would like. And it seems clear at this point that uh, uh, Russia is continuing to make uh, military gains uh, despite claims to the contrary from the White House and and the corporate-owned media. And so how do you think the calculus of Washington is sort of um, operating at this moment where they seem to be uh, uh, losing ground in one of its other uh, major efforts at this juncture? Well, I think there's a lot of miscalculation and confusing uh, confusion happening at the level of the uh, ruling elite. But there are essentially two or three factions or two or three doctrines that they're trying to assert. One is that you finish off Russia first, and then you take on uh, China. These are the two great revisionist powers, and we move sequentially. That doesn't seem to be working so well. And so then you have another group that says that we need to be ambidextrous. We need to be able to wage a two-front war. This is the language that they're using. And they say, well, you know, we kind of maintain the status quo. You know, we let Europe bleed itself out fighting uh, Russia. And we pivot to Asia, in particular, towards Taiwan. And then there's a third uh, faction which says, just kind of drop, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Ukraine. It's it's a lost cause. The key issue is China. China is is the real threat. Russia, you know, is a minor inconvenience, and therefore we need to move all our power, our military force, all our focus onto China. So these are the three different. Uh, you know, kind of uh, factions currently in the ruling imperial elite. 
And I have a feeling that the second and the third are starting to take precedence, that they're feeling that they can uh, move more into uh, Asia, that Russia is more or less a lost cause. We see this in the kind of, uh, you know, some of the mixed messaging we're hearing about Zelensky. Uh, and so, you know, this is, once again, it makes things even more dangerous because you know, China is uh, much, much more deeply embedded in the global economy. Its economy is 10 times the size of Russia. Any sanctions against China would make the, you know, the effects of the sanctions against Russia, the blowback from the sanctions against Russia uh, look like child's play. The similarity between the two situations is both in the Ukraine and regarding Taiwan Island. The U.S. is currently crossing all the red lines that, uh, you know, that both Russia and or China have been warning against. And so that makes things extraordinarily, extraordinarily dangerous. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, KJ, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about ongoing far-right attacks against transgender youth. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsource, and host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, good to be here. And they're at it again. Don't don't these people have lives? That's what I want to know. Do they have hobbies? Do they have people who care about them? This is getting ridiculous between what we're seeing with this bill and what a number of hospitals in our country are dealing with right now with people threatening medical professionals for helping gain affirming care for trans youth. It's shameful and it's sick and it's wrong. Absolutely. And that's precisely what I wanted to get into today, Carl. I mean, specifically uh, this proposed bill that was introduced by far right representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of uh, Georgia, uh, introducing a bill that would basically make uh, providing gender affirming medical care to uh, transgender minors uh, a felony that would be punishable up to 25 years in prison. Uh, she's calling this the Protect Children's Innocence Act. And I I was hoping you could help us understand, Carly. I mean, uh, uh, what is sort of the, the the substance of this bill, and how do you see it sort of factoring into this uh, uh, ongoing far right attack against LGBTQ people, sort of uh, using uh, young people as a pretext? First, there is no substance to this bill whatsoever. This is this is strictly white Christian dominionism and white nationalism on the march again. The white nationalist representative from the state of Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene has put up this bill strictly for one purpose, to be cruel. That's what this is really about. This is actually what Marjorie Taylor Greene's proposing is systemic, legalized, codified child abuse against a segment of American children. The people of Georgia's 14th district 
need to realize that this November, you cannot send this white nationalist back to Washington. That's what the, that's what is really at the crux of this. We can talk about the specifics of the bill, and granted, these bill, this bill gets very specific. The funny thing is, they're trying, they want to outlaw things that medical professionals don't do. Medical professionals do not perform gender-affirming surgeries on kids. How many times do we have to tell conservatives this? Are, are, I mean, do they need to clean the wax out of their ears? Is it a comprehension problem? They are trying to regulate something that doesn't exist. This is strictly a message that transgender Americans are not Americans. And it is time for, especially cisgender Americans, it's time for you to speak up. They keep doing this because they believe you won't speak up. They believe they will, you won't speak up anywhere in this country. And, they, and this is specifically to the voters of the 14th District. Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks you're stupid. That's what this is really about. And, you know, Carly, they, they really do. And, and it's not just her because she is actually uh, introducing this legislation on the heels of uh, an Alabama law that passed earlier this year that makes it a, a felony punishable up to a decade in prison for doctors or others to assist transgender youth. Uh, younger than 19 in accessing firm, uh, gender-affirming medical care, inc- including puberty blockers or hormone therapy. But Marjorie Taylor Greene goes even farther by, by saying that more than a dozen medical interventions and procedures used to treat gender dysphoria in transgender young people like puberty blockers or hormone therapy and certain kinds of surgeries are actually done for the purpose of changing the body of such individual to correspond to a sex that differs from their biological sex. It sounds to me that she is completely uh, flipping on its head the kind of treatment that transgender youth are actually getting. So what is she actually convoluting here in this legislation to make claims that something's being done that's really not? Jackie, what she's really doing is something that conservatives do very well in the United States. They play on people's ignorance. Because the fact of the matter is, the majority of Americans don't know, don't know a trans, don't have transgender people in their lives, even though more and more are starting to, as more and more transgender people are, are getting out in society and are out here working and living and cisgender people realizing that they're there. The fact is, there still is a knowledge, there's a knowledge gap. And one thing that reactionaries always do is they, they exploit knowledge gaps. And they, and they also go on the premise that there's a knowledge gap and you won't fact check us on it. And that's why, again, I say, cisgender Americans especially, get knowledgeable, ask the questions, and realize how you're being played. Because the things that she wants to regulate in this bill are things that medical professionals aren't doing. Do you, does anyone, do you know what affirming health care is for a child, especially who's under 12? It's getting their pronouns right, getting their name right, affirming their, and affirming their identity in all situations. That is what affirming care looks like. You're really not talking about biochemical interventions, the surgical interventions to lay down the line. You're not talking about surgical interventions until they're past the age of eight, until a given person is past the age of 18. So a lot of these things, again, they're, they're trying to, they're convoluting all of this stuff because they believe the average American who is cisgender will not fact check them. And that is why 
re- again, the reactionaries are playing you for a sucker. Get educated, understand what's really going on. And again, for all people, get out and street. Hey, you, it's one thing to vote in November and you should, but all, but more importantly, you need to be out in the streets. And by the way, just a note, the, the co, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the co-signers of this bill, I'm doing a quick count here. Ten of them, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, also voted yes on taking your election away from you in 2020 and back in 2020. And a group of these people were in some way involved in what you saw on January 6, 2021. This isn't just this bill. This is a whole set of processes that they're trying to do to haunt, to take away your rights, take away the democracy that, that we all claim we hold dear, and to simply put, put you in a, a position of subservience. They want the Republic of Gilead. They're trying to get the means to get it. That's what all this is about at the end of the day. Again, we can argue all the specifics of this bill. And basically, I've read the bill. And all of it is so convoluted. But it's convoluted. And it's a lie. And they know they're lying. But here's the thing. All the people listening out there, they believe that you don't know they're lying. And I'm here to tell you, they are. And I've got the receipts. And so do many other people who are on the front lines against these reactionaries. Yeah, and Carly, a little earlier in our conversation, you mentioned about uh, uh, some issues that were happening in uh, hospitals. Uh, What are you referring to uh, specifically, and how does it uh, sort of connect to this uh, issue here? Well, a good friend of mine, Alejandro Caribalo, who is the head of the Cyber Law Project at Harvard Law School, has been really sounding the alarm on this, and so has and so has another activist, Aaron Reed, who's an activist and who is a legislative researcher. They've been sounding the alarm on this for the last two weeks that at a lot of that at a number of hospitals across this country who are specializing in affirming care, such as Lewis Children's Hospital, Chicago, Boston Children's Hospital, and Boston, Massachusetts, they have been the target of people that have directly threatened doctors and nurses and administrators at the hospital by name via their email and via social media for providing affirmative care and for affirming health care. And they've been the target of people who, I mean, there's been some federal intervention in on this and these things have been harrowing. I've been reading some of the things that uh, Ms. Caraballo has put out there in the recent days. And I would be, I mean, this is how Oklahoma cities happen. It starts with this. And it can and it can extend if we don't start cracking down on this now. I'm I'm gone. President Biden, you need to get your DOJ on on this because this is sarcastic terrorism. These threats are ugly, and it's not coming from outside the country. It's coming from inside the inside the city gates, and it's been a consistent far right campaign. And the very people that are putting up these bills, people such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been documented and has been and there's footage of her at white nationalist functions, at Christian Dominionist functions, saying the very threats that these same people are putting on healthcare workers. By the way, in the middle of a global pandemic and a growing health crisis in this country as well, with monkeypox, what we're seeing here is, once again, we're seeing people wanting to be the sons of Jacob who think that The Handmaid's Tale is a textbook. It's, it's dire, it's desperate, and once again, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, we have receipts on this. There's one. In fact, I want to read one to you real quick. 
one of the posts say we need to start executing these doctors at Boston Children's Hospital for, for providing perversion to youth. I mean, this is not just to you know to be clear. Uh, this is not just Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene's show because her bill has fourteen co-sponsors, all Republicans, quite obviously. So you know that is definitely something that people co-sponsors also voted against the anti the anti-human trafficking bill. They voted they voted to try and perpetrate the big lie in the election of twenty twenty. These are the same people that are also calling for things such as legalized voter voter suppression. I I mean the brown. Um, my friend Alejandro Caraballo called this brown shirt tactics. It's kind of accurate. Welcome to Weimar America. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing that seems to be sort of a consistent tactic by this sort of far right attack on the LGBTQ community, particularly focusing on uh, transgender folks here, Carly, is how they always try to seem to use the protection of children as a a, a cover, like this thinly veiled sort of excuse uh, uh, to go after an entire community. You know what I mean? It's just like how not that long ago uh, uh, we saw transgender folks being attacked in the streets for being, quote unquote, groomers of children and things like that. And I mean, it's the same thing we hear around the issues with bathrooms and all these sorts of things like children literally being used um, as a justification for denying uh, fundamental rights to transgender folks. And it's just like sort of this deeply uh, cynical thing that actually seems to be quite successful, at least amongst uh, uh, the far right on uh, the one hand. And then, of course, in terms of liberals, we're talking about the Democratic Party. There's seemingly refusal to really uh, fight back against this in uh, uh, a substantive way. And so it seems uh, just like you're saying, Carly, that I mean, the, the most potent way to really fight back against this is to actually organize around it, because we see that when it comes to the uh, American political mainstream, there's just clearly no real solution seemingly coming uh, from that element. Exactly. But it, but it all goes back once again to begin with, we the first step of fighting back, and we understand this as people who are in a revolutionary mindset, you got to call things what they are. You have to call things, just as my, just as Karl Marx called the, called the capitalist feudalists, called them exactly what they are in his day, just as, just as Lenin called it like it is his day, and Dubois called it like it was, and Emma Goldman called it like it was, we have to start doing it. We have to start calling these people white nationalists, Christian dominionists, because that's what they are. We need to call them insurrectionists, because that's what they are. We need to call them bigots, because that's what they are. It's time for us to stop trying to, stop trying to be so congenial and that's the first step. Our first step is decolonize our minds to realize that we're dealing with people that will step on you to get what they want, that will hurt you and that will hurt you and maim you and bully you and not care. And that's what we're seeing here. And they're willing to say anything else. These are people that lie and they find it very easy to lie. And once again, they're lying on this issue. Uh, they're lying on this issue, just like they're lying on many others. And that's why, again, we need solidarity across all lines, especially across the lines of, of the working class as, as a whole, because this is what it all comes back to. It all comes back to dividing working people against their common interest. The same people that are against this bill are also against the same people that, that, want, to give you, that want to give you relief from the economic stresses of the pandemic. They're against, the, they are against all the means 
for further health care reform. They're, and they're certainly against the wave of unionization and workers organizing that we're seeing in this country right now. All these things are interconnected. So I'm encouraging people, get educated, get informed, be ready to get in the streets and understand that even if, even if you don't have a trans child, even if you don't know anybody who's trans, this is your fight too. If they can take away health care, for example, from the most marginalized, they can find a way to snatch it from me too. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Carly, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how different media platforms seem to be trying to profit off of the far right ramblings of Alex Jones. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ari Paul, contributing writer to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, also known as FAIR. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. And Ari, of course, there's been quite a bit of coverage around uh, Alex Jones lately, particularly around his uh, uh, recent trial uh, concerning his role in basically facilitating the harassment of uh, parents of children who were uh, victimized in the Sandy Hook school mass shooting, uh, calling them crisis actors and things like this. I believe that ultimately uh, the parents of these children uh, were awarded about a 45 million million dollars in damages. And uh, there's also been, you know, coverage of, uh, frankly, hilarious missteps by uh, Jones's own legal team in terms of uh, exposing a number of things. But uh, you recently published a piece in FAIR where you sort of break down how uh, different media platforms, even some that are considered uh, quite reputable by uh, the broad public, um, along with some documentaries as well, uh, seemingly have uh, used Alex Jones to get uh, attention for their platforms, to get clicks, which uh, really uh, only serves to further give Jones a platform to sort of spout his, you know, wingnut types of views. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, how this has been playing out and what you've been able to analyze. Yeah. So when I was watching uh, the trial on TV and was reading about this new movie, this documentary about him that is you know, considered very, you know, favorable to him and that he himself, that Jones himself has been you know, very approval, has given his approval for this film. Um, it made me think a lot about the Rage Against the Machine song, uh, No Shelter, and the line is, um, there's a thin line between entertainment and war. And while there, that can seem like a very uh, hyperbolic statement, there is something that kind of happens with that, with Alex Jones's stuff. Everyone sort of is drawn to him um, even if they don't believe what he's saying, because there's an entertaining quality to it, the same way we often might look at um, you know, fake newspapers at a grocery store um, or The Onion or something, that there is a, a sort of absurdist, surrealist uh, entertainment quality to his performance. And so we've, we're all a little complicit in, 
you know, propping him up. I myself have shared uh, clips of him on my own Facebook uh, to say, look at this. But underneath that whole performance is a very dark and dangerous message. And a great many um, media groups ranging from independent to corporate have sort of used him as a way to you know, boost their own image. So, for example, he was famously on CNN to discuss uh, gun control with Piers Morgan, which was sort of a you know, nothing of any sort of substance was uh, offered in this quote-unquote debate, but it drew a lot of eyeballs to CNN. Um, but unfortunately, that only just gives a platform to uh, Jones, and a number of other uh, networks uh, have done the same. Um, and also what came out, especially at the trial, were, was that, you know, no media outlet exists on its own. I mean, there were producers, people collaborating with uh, with Jones, um either because they just needed a job or they believed in the message and they were part of the organization who helped, uh, you know, keep InfoWars, his show, alive. So he's really, you know, a, a lot of the, 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 the mainstream coverage sort of focuses on him, and that's very understandable. Um, but a great degree of media has, you know, uh, well, media outlets have propped him up, but also a great many media contributors have, you know, decided that, he was someone they could collaborate with. Yeah, and, and and it's that collaboration with Jones who, you know, in his show Infrawars, you know, he he comports himself like this almost unhinged madman. But even in his divorce proceedings, we saw that you know, it was revealed that he's really not that type of person. But the fact that he was able to use his platform to get his followers to really carry out this campaign of harassment against the Sandy Hook families, that makes the the willingness of media outlets uh, to, to have anything to do with this man really, really troubling. So, I mean, how deep was the fact that, you know, Jones had so much control, seemingly, and I hate to give it that type of characterization, but really, his followers really did go after those Sandy Hook uh, parents. And what, what did that, you know, illuminate in that trial about Jones and about the people uh, who propped up his operation? Well, I think, you know, the, the first part of that is how is he able to to get this out? I mean, there's always been a political force that has been steadily against gun control and thus has been very defensive against whenever there's a, a mass, they believe that whenever there's a mass shooting, that that's going to be exploited to, you know, enact some sort of gun control. And so he very much tapped into that type of, that political paranoia on the on the right i think he just sort of took it to an extreme that you know you don't see in a lot of other places uh, i mean during the trial right i mean it was very much shown that you know at one point uh one staffer testified that he had had, had doubts about their narrative that the sandy hook um shooting had been faked and that he was laughed off which kind of shows the degree to which that you know everyone else in the I, I, I hate to call it a newsroom, but the Infowars newsroom, you know, believed in this narrative. Um, there was even another person who went on air to promote this idea that the Sandy Hook uh, parents were some sort of crisis actors and that they were all, you know, sort of faking it. Um, you know, there's always a lot to say about people who just, you know, go into a, a workplace every day and, you know, do the work and not necessarily agree with what they're doing. But, you know, when you're lot when you are knowingly going on air to lie about the deaths of children, 
if you're not having a soul searching moment right then, you're probably never going to have one. But Jones was able to do that because he had a, you know, a, 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 a real workforce under him that was promoting that. And I think beyond that, um, again, I think there are people who sort of not, I don't want to say like Jones, but they sort of see an entertaining quality with him, even if they don't agree with the most egregious things that he's ever said, like the, like the, like the Sandy Hook stuff. But because that can sort of launch their own careers, uh, or it can, you know, like you said before, it can get clicks for CNN if they have him on for, for, for Piers Morgan. But that, that's a very superficial, that's not really, you know, a news person's job or, and you're also sort of, whether you know it or not, you're, you're benefiting from his worst instincts. Yeah, and you know, Ari, the thing about Alex Jones is he's been at this for quite some time. I remember I first found out about him when I was in undergrad. I think I watched something. He was trying to, like, sneak into the Bohemian Grove or something. But I think that people don't quite realize just how lucrative an operation InfoWars was or, or uh, yeah, or it was. And so on the one hand, he portrays himself as like this crazy, uh, as crazy like a fox truth teller to his supporters. And to the rest of us, uh, he just sort of seems like a madman. But in either case, uh, Jones, uh, up until this point, has been uh, laughing all the way to the bank, it seems. So, I mean, what kind of money has Jones been uh, pulling down uh, uh, through this platform? Yeah, I mean, there was some, I can't remember where it was, but there was uh, some news commentator who said, we shouldn't really be classifying him as a conspiracy theorist. He's more like a snake oil salesman. And you know, one thing that differentiates him from a lot of other um, sort of people in the wild, the fringe ring, uh, uh, wing of right-wing media, is that he's made a lot of money, not just through his media, but through selling prepper gear and supplements for some sort of po- a post-apocalyptic event. Because before he was, you know, as he was up and coming, there's always been an element in the American right that is attracted to survivalism and prepping, uh, because they believe there's either going to be some war type uh, incident to prepare for, or or an environmental catastrophe. Um, so he was able. That's another thing that he was able to tap into. And I believe Rolling Stone had reported that he had pulled in, uh, you know, uh, north of a hundred million dollars selling these types of supplements um, that he was using his media uh, platform to you know, use that as a vehicle to essentially advertise for this line of products that he was able to sell. At one point during the trial, uh, believe I think it was even in the phone disclosures when his text messages were uh, erroneous or, you know, we don't, I mean, there's a lot of uh, speculation on how the defense attorneys got the, uh, the uh, his text messages, but when they got the text messages, it showed that he had something, that they were making something like 800000 dollars a day uh, during um, the worst of the Sandy Hook coverage. One economist had testified that he could, he and his media company could be worth almost a quarter of a billion with a B dollars. Um, and I think uh, that's both just as a media organization, but also sort of a media organization that sells this line of stuff that there's a market for. In a way, he's a very smart marketer. Yeah, definitely. Even as he, during the trial, uh, tried to claim bankruptcy and it was obviously exposed that, no, he's he's not anywhere close to bankrupt. So, you know, the, the Vaudevillian Madman Act could only go so far and didn't save him from uh, the four, $45 million settlement uh, that he has to pay to the families of the Sandy Hook 
a massacre. And, you know, this film uh, that Alex that is about Alex Jones uh, also kind of raises the question of the the kind of starstruck nature that other people in the various media uh, environment have when it comes to Jones from, you know, people like Glenn Greenwald to obviously Tucker Carlson. So, you know, can you tell us about those folks and the way the rest of the media kind of have gravitated like, you know, satellites around the planet uh, of, of of Alex Jones. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about Alex Lee Moyer, the director of this new film, you know, whether or not she's a fellow traveler of the alt-right or if she's just simply interested in the alt-right, not necessarily sympathetic. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, if you make a movie about someone and they decide to be at the premiere of that movie and do interviews with you, they might, they, the, the, the movie must be somewhat uh, sympathetic to that individual. For example, if I made a documentary about Paul Wolfowitz in the Iraq War and I was on tour with him, you couldn't be too critical of a of a documentary. Could it, uh, could it be? So there's that sort of doubt that is shown on why this pr- this project was was done. Uh, for a lot, for example, the reviews tend to point out that it really only offers his voice; it doesn't offer other people's uh, voices. Why would you give? Vo- you know, journalism is about giving voice to the voiceless, not giving vo- voice to someone who already has a huge voice. Why wouldn't you interview people who we don't hear from? So there's that kind of questioning. I think the uh, the motivate. I mean, one motivation could just be um, again, there's a market for this, and people will want to get in on it. Um, you know, again, Glenn Greenwald, um, the uh, in, uh, who founded the Intercept, and at the, at, when during his time at the Guardian, did very important work around uh, exposing national security agency uh, espionage on the American people. The fact that he was up there on stage during the premiere with Alex Jones, sort of, you know, having a very friendly conversation, not a very penetrating interview. Sort of, uh, one could even call it not even really a you know an interview just two people having a friendly conversation i mean who knows i mean we can't really psychoanalyze from afar i can imagine that greenwald has uh you know he's a very he's a frequent guest on tucker carlson um the most popular show on fox news that this is the um the part of the media sphere that he feels most comfortable in but the problem is is that if you are in these worlds and even if you are not saying things like if you're not endorsing tucker carlson's view of uh, you know, he's talked about white, uh, what is it called, uh, great replacement theory, a sort of white supremacist conspiracy theory, or you're on stage with Alex Jones and you don't necessarily agree with the the, uh, the Sandy Hook parent theory, but you're on, the, you're, you know, you're, you're palling around with them. It's inevitable that people will see you as somewhat sympathetic. Uh, and that's a calculation many people have made, largely because I, they're just okay with their media brand growing in that sense. It's a very sort of cynical view and a very banal one, uh, but unfortunately, I think it's a very common one. Uh, I think it in, it happens in all forms of media. I think we're seeing it now with Alex Jones because he's so sensational and people are drawn to it. I think, yeah, I think that's the answer. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ari, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live, and remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320, but wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, an artist, author, independent journalist, and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. I'm always happy to join you, Sean and Jackie. And we're always happy to have you, Esther. And I wanted to kick things off today in my home state of Florida, where uh, a judge uh, recently declared that the Stop Woke Act, uh, a law uh, championed by none other than Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, um, he has uh, judged that uh, basically this piece is uh, a kind of violation of the First Amendment and things like this. Um, The Stop Woke Act, it stands for the Stop the Wrong to our Kids and Employees Act, um, which is basically a part of the ongoing assault on uh, quote unquote critical race theory, but uh, in reality is uh, sort of a culture war piece that has been weaponized to keep uh, schools and other institutions across the country from giving just like the basic facts about uh, the racist history of the United States. And I'm just wondering how you're uh, uh, considering this, uh, uh, Esther, as the whole issue around CR has kind of fallen out of the headlines as of late, but it's pretty clear that that's still very much an issue. Yeah, well, I have to say first that I love uh, what the judge wrote. I think it's Judge Mark Walker. Uh, He wrote in his opinion, uh, I believe, uh, quote, if Florida truly believes we live in a post-racial society, then let it make its case. But it cannot win the argument by muzzling its opponents, end quote. So you have an attempt by DeSantis to enforce what they believe is uh, their kind of warped, uninformed version of history 
or deny people the right to speak the true history by enforcing this act. I think it's very dangerous. I think that, that as you said, this is the most recent attempt by the far right, and I put DeSantis in that category, to act through the courts, through legislation, through their political offices, to enforce a, an alternative reality on Americans, where there is uh, supposedly no police brutality, where uh, the, there was no genocide against Native Americans, there was no enslavement that continued to have a, a, an impact long after slavery ended in terms of the denial of human rights of African Americans, formerly enslaved people, even up until, you know, recent history, where I heard one CNN reporter say, uh, almost to the shock of those standing around her, uh, sitting around her on a panel that, well, we've only only we've only had uh, true democracy or voting rights in this country, you know, for, you know, for like 50 years, you know, pointing out that the Voting Rights Act wasn't even passed until 1965. So when she said that, everybody kind of looked like, or like, well, what are you talking about? We're, you know, we're founded on democracy and these great principles and our founding fathers. But needless to say, I just think that it's very dangerous and it just goes hand in glove with what the Supreme Court is doing, what you see, you know, Congress just did in terms of kowtowing to the far right and, and getting some, some piece of legislation that, that uh, addresses human needs. Yeah, you know, and I, I too, <laughs> really su- uh, uh, support what the judge said in his decision. He said that the law, as applied to di- diversity in the workplace, inclusion, and bias training uh, in business, turns the First Amendment upside down because the state is barring speech by prohibiting discussion of certain concepts in training programs. And it's interesting that, you know, this ridiculous Stop Woke Act uh, prohibited or tried to prohibit teachers, uh, a teaching or business practices that contend members of one ethnic group are inherently racist and should feel guilt for past actions committed by others. And I, I don't know, Esther, I can't think of any like business practice that actually espouses that, that does that. There, I don't, I can't think of a business practice like there is not a, uh, a, a SWAT a diagram or a business plan of any business or corporation in this country that I can think of that um, actually builds a business model uh, based on making white people feel guilty for for anything, quite honestly. And and I just feel like this this kind of legislation is another way for conservatives to um to to change the discussion because they know these things aren't true, but they they put things in this in these types of legislation that are actually not happening but they continue to say that they are right so when you i'm glad i'm so glad you read that part because really what they're basically saying is is yeah it's an untruth there cuz because nobody goes into any type of training program saying that you're inherently racist or that uh, a child is is uh, like a, a child in the classroom is being told, told that you are inherently racist. They are kind of extrapolating that from the idea that people might be taught 
about the history of ra- racism and white supremacy in this country. So if you're going to make the leap to say that to teach this means that you're making um, white children or even white adults feel guilty about history, then hmm, maybe we need to have like a truth and reconciliation process in this country. We really need to have a process by which people are taught the real history. And it's not about guilt for anybody, but it's about acknowledgement. You know, maybe they don't want it to get to the point of reparations because once the truth is told and the the ongoing impacts of that history are known, then, you know, the case of reparations becomes more apparent. And so, you know, it all when it gets to the money, (laughs) you know, things are going to get people are definitely going to start to, you know, uh, fight back because they don't they don't want to see black people, any people of color who have been systematically discriminated against, uh, repressed, oppressed, um, outright uh, have had their land and their their um, property, their money stolen from them. They don't they don't want to acknowledge those things because it gets really personal in terms of how did you get what you have? You know, maybe not directly, but how did your skin privilege? How did how did the system of white supremacy, which has lasted for decades, not just during slavery. How did that impact you? Yeah, I mean, I agree that the whole way this is being framed, of course, is completely fake, as you note, Esther, and is uh, uh, obviously just uh, a justification as an an excuse to uh, uh, try to push this thing through. And, you know, it's hard for me, Esther, not to see these kinds of uh, uh, proposed legislation and even other legislation that we saw in Florida, like that the anti-protest bill that would basically make it okay for people to plow through road, uh, uh, through protesters who were, you know, shutting down a, a, a street. It's hard not to see this as, I mean, a part and parcel of the response of, you know, the George Floyd uprisings and the ongoing uh, fight against not only racist police terror specifically, but a fight against racism in general. There is already a a pretty poor grasp of uh, the real history of the United States as it stands right now. And so when we see this kind of proposed law, it's clearly an all-out attack to try to completely erase the reality of uh, racism from U.S. history, uh, a white supremacy, which is something that is literally in the DNA, the fundamental fabric of this country that is uh, uh, built on that. And it seems that uh, this kind of legislation is part of an effort to, I mean, basically try to uh, uh, deaden that struggle and to try to keep, you know, future generations of young people from even knowing anything about the real struggles against white supremacy in this country and certainly to disincline them to actually want to, to join that effort. So I feel like there are deep implications for things uh, uh, like this and the fact that the right basically pulled this whole issue of critical race theory out of thin air. I mean, literally, it was it was a, a completely uh, a fake issue that they turned into a, a, a major uh, struggle, a whole sort of a cultural war piece. Right. And so uh, taking sort of the, the long view of things, it's just hard not to see the obvious political implications for a piece like this. Stop, uh, excuse me, Stop Woke Act. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, I had to, to mention that I I am so uh, very connected to what you're saying. I'm so um, upset, <laughs> I guess that's the best word, that the right has been able to, as you said, 
you know, create something out of whole cloth that doesn't exist. And and I wanted to uh, refer back to, I think I heard someone on your, one of your guests last week, just talk about the whole idea of woke, right? And the term, because my, my experience is that it came out of struggle. It came out of the idea of being political, politically conscious and being politically awake and to be able to make the connections between uh, all, to make the connections between all these things that are going on around us and not see them in silos, you know, to uh, understand that, as, especially as, as African-Americans, we want to understand the connections between, uh, you know, maybe just people who want to just strive to be a part of the middle class. They want to get a, a, a nice job and, you know, be a part of that kind of world, that there are consequences for that, that it's, it's, it's about more than just um, how, like, living a life, you know, and according to kind of the so-called American dream, but it's also understanding what, what is underpinning that. You know, what are these corporations doing that, you know, you want to graduate from college and get a job at? You know, what is, what are, what is Wall Street doing? You know, what is the connection between the condition of our people and our, you know, the, the effort of some of us to just kind of graduate and get a good job? You know, what are you what are you doing to contribute to the system of capitalism, imperialism and exploitation of not only people here in this country, but uh, around the world? So so I think that it's coming. It's, it's a real attack on those of us who. Uh, have tried to step outside of this paradigm where we're only uh, interested in ourselves, that we have stepped out of this uh, mode of individualism to think about larger society and think of ourselves as citizens of the world who care about the world and, and yes, who are awake, who are awake, and we're not asleep, asleep, you know, just waiting for the latest episode of uh, Game of Thrones to start or waiting for football season to start, or, you know, uh, you know, whatever. So, you know, I just think that that it, it comes out of uh, an attack on uh, something that's very near and dear to those of us who are trying to uh, not only uh, live in a different way to be, to have resistance against the society, but also to, to, educate our neighbors, our family, any of, the, any of those around us to also be awake <laughs> to what is going on and not just fall into the sleep, you know, uh, which is what they seem to want us to do. They want to lull us to sleep with all types of entertainment, you know, whether it's drugs or whatever it is to distract us and keep us asleep rather than awake. So we need to, we need to reclaim woke, you know, and I'm, I'm offended that just like in so many other things, they're able to use a term for us that was a term of resistance and a term of education for us to, to think about being awake and turn it into this meme and this meaningless, you know, app name like the, like the name of this law in Florida. And Esther, do you do you think that the ease with which and and I don't know whether ease is the right word. I just think that conservatives are uh, uh, they organize around 
uh, principles of unity that that are horrible and nefarious, but they're really good at organizing around whatever principle of unity they have, and they play the long game in their organizing. But I do wonder if you think that the 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 way that they have co-opted a term that did come out of struggle, wokeness, that you know, to evoke, uh, to you know, to to suggest consciousness, uh, being aware of the the conditions and the system. Do you think they were able to do that partially because too many of us didn't push back when we saw them? co-opting the term and turning it into a, you know, purely political ploy uh, to advance their interest. And then there was and, 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 and some of us kind of did that because we some of us wanted to distance ourselves from uh, some of the organizing that was going on around that term in, in this, you know, latest iteration of the struggle. Do you think that part of the reason they're able to do that is because we didn't we didn't protect the term and what it really means as as quickly and as thoroughly as we should have. You know, that could be, Jackie. I, I, I guess I haven't been in those spaces where I've seen that type of kind of uh, failure to kind of to protect our, our, you know, our, our movement in that way. I think a lot of it has to do with the power of corporate media and, and right and explicitly right wing media. Um, I think that earlier you were talking about Alex Jones, for example. And there are these platforms that exist really kind of beyond my my eyesight because I don't really regularly peruse them. Every now and then I have the gumption to click into Fox News because I really do need to know what is being said on this type of far-right platform. But, you know, I think that it, it has more to do with the power of these other megaphones. And these uh, media silos that exist are often very powerful, and they uh, they are well funded by uh, these billionaires, and uh, they can pretty much say anything, and they create their whole little world of their own terminology and their own ways of looking at things. You know, I was just uh, looking at you know uh, a panel where uh, you know uh, a man was. Um, I think his name's John Baroli. Um, he's listed as a public relations practitioner, uh, but he is talking about uh, referring to all of the uh, what we know, but as the uprising of 2020 as riots, and you know, basically defaming the whole movement. And you hear this repeated on uh, outlets like Fox News. So. Maybe it's their way of pushing back against uh, what was the real riot on on January 6, 2021. But they they refer now to all of the uprising against racism as these riots that our all of our cities were burning down. And we know that this this type of hyperbole is a lie. But still, it's the type of hyperbole. It's the same type of language that's able to take woke and being awake. And trying to be a citizen of the world that cares about the world and not just in your little uh, neoliberal capitalist cocoon, to care, you know, caring about, you know, your next vacation to the Hamptons or wherever you, whatever you're thinking about. You're thinking about uh, social change and social justice. So I think I think it's really just the power of this, these these uh, far right and, and just right wing media platforms. 
Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Esther Averum. And Esther, sticking with the South for a moment, uh, some residents of the majority black town of Lexington, Mississippi, are actually suing the town for hiring a, a cop with a known history of racist brutality against black people. Uh, namely, I'm talking about uh, Officer Sam Dobbins. And I want to just quickly read a paragraph from an article in Truth Out that was published about this, where it says, quote, a lawsuit filed in federal court this week claims white police in the rural majority black town of Lexington, Mississippi, targeted black residents and subjected them to false arrests, brutality, excessive fines and unreasonable searches. The department's discriminatory intent was made clear by a leaked recording of Sam Dobbins, the former police chief, hurling racist and homophobic slurs and bragging about killing 13 people as an officer, the lawsuit argues. In the recording, Dobbins relishes the idea that residents, quote, fear him. Now, uh, you know, Esther, this sounds almost like something from a different time. I mean, straight out of an episode of In the Heat of the Night or something. But I think it just shows that the reality of racist police terror is, you know, certainly not a relic of the past. I mean, we were talking about the George Floyd uprising just a moment ago, something that just happened two years ago. You know what I mean? But I mean, uh, tell us more about this whole situation in uh, uh, Lexington, Mississippi. And, you know, what do you think it shows about a racist policing here in the U.S.? Well, I mean, it's just so much that's really, truly disturbing. So, you know, the first thing we have to see is that Sam Dobbins, uh, just like the police officer who killed Tamir Rice, was able to go from one police department where he had acted in a truly outrageous way uh, in the case to, to Cleveland. And then I think um, maybe last year we heard that he got another job somewhere and, and you know, the, certainly the movement for black lives was all on it, trying to make sure that people knew that this is a police officer who shot and killed, you know, Tamir Rice as a boy playing with a toy gun, but shot and killed him within two seconds of stopping his police car. And so we see that, obviously, you know, uh, and I have to say that I saw uh, a, a piece done by the Mississippi Center, I think, for investigative reporting that really goes uh, into a lot of detail about some of the other uh, crimes of this Dobbin, that who was hired in, in Lexington, um, um, Mississippi. And one of the things that was really struck me was his, his involvement in repeatedly 
uh, arresting, harassing this truck driver, and I'm trying to find uh, this piece. Um, and he finally uh, arrests this man for having some type of knife, right? And this man winds up spending six months in prison uh, before he's even uh, able to get any type of justice. justice. And while he's in prison, he uh, is beaten, uh, tased. There's one scene where they have this man, um, and Dobbins is connected with this incident, where they have him stripped naked, um, tied up like he's on the cross almost like, you know, the crucifixion, and they're tasing him and beating him uh, to the point of unconsciousness. He had to go to the ER, uh, emergency room, and he was in the hospital for eight days. So uh, the fact that a person like this uh, goes on and gets another job is one of the takeaways for sure. Uh, Another one is how... Uh, these cases of excessive uh, brutality and, and as far as I'm concerned, crimes by police are only brought to light when some brave person comes through with a video or audio of them confessing to the crime, showing what they're doing. And in that sense, we're, we're still back at, you know, the horrific case of George Floyd. We're still back at the case where, you know, it took the, the video of a young teenager to of a teenager to bring to light to the world what had happened because we know that the Minnesota police had put out a false press release that said, Oh, you know, this person had some kind of medical distress and they died at the hospital, which we know now is a lie, but um, we fear and we know that this, this type of brutality is ongoing. And it just disturbs me two years after George Floyd's murder that we only find out when someone leaks a video. And even then, uh, we don't always get even charges or indictments. So this this Dobbins person, he, sure, he got fired after the video leaked of him uh, bragging about uh, shooting a man 119 times, you know, calling him the N-word. Sure, he got fired, but are there any charges? And, you know, and also... Uh, residents of the town say that he is still riding around with police, even though he's been fired. He's still riding around in their patrol cars, like riding shotguns, you know, perhaps literally, and and still terrorizing people. So, uh, you know, this uh, uh, the the repeated arrests of people, the harassment of people. It reminds me of Ferguson. Uh, what people what was happening in Ferguson, Missouri, that really kind of kicked off the, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives, the murder of Mike Brown. And another piece to that I'll add is that uh, a piece in by the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting uh, says that, well, it shows, it proves that but Dobbins was also involved in uh, this kind of uh these arrests, these types, this type of harassment as a way of raising money, you know, and we know that a lot of these small towns, their, their police departments are funded by the money that they can extract uh, from populations through these ticketing, this ticketing, this harassment, 
these fines, and sometimes the fines double and triple and quadruple. And then some uh, uh, some towns even have a situation where you can be jailed, you know, almost kind of like a debtor prisoner situation. But anyway, this um, this piece uh, by the Mississippi uh, Center for Investigative Reporting says that fines and uh, this type of income. Uh, Increased more than threefold once Dobbins was appointed. So before that, you would have annual revenue largely looking at this graph of under five thousand dollars. But then after he took over, you have it going up to thirty-five, uh, up to thirty-five thousand dollars. So this is another thing that he was doing, and it really relates back to this continuing struggle that we've had ever since Ferguson, largely about this type of predatory policing that's not only killing us, but it's also uh, subjecting the, the community to harassment, uh, the, the seizure of assets and, and, you know, finding people, giving people tickets that make people, that's impoverishing people during a time when we are dealing with the pandemic, unemployment and other issues. You know, he's just, uh, uh, you know, this, this, you know, criminal basically allowed to, roll around the community uh, doing this type of damage. And Esther, as, you know, this story unfolds and, and, you know, we learned that the local alderman voted three to two to fire Dobbins on July 20th. And, you know, the black residents in the town applauded that. Uh, but he's, as you point out, he's still, you know, driving around terrorizing people. I have to go back to how this man got hired because, the very same people who voted to, and, and maybe this is a question, I don't know if this is true for sure, but the, the hiring of Dobbins was not like a decision made by one person. City officials hired Dobbins. So I think we need to start asking or we need to start pointing out that the problem is not just that, you know, city officials don't do anything about killer cops. It's that city officials hire these people, knowing who they are, knowing what their track records are, and then they respond with this, you know, public performative action like voting to fire the person that they hired. And and people are left wondering, well, how are these people still terrorizing folks? Well, because the very same people who made the decision to uh, fire this person, maybe they were the same per- people who hired him in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, we we have to wonder about the type of uh, investigation, the type of background checks that police officers undergo. And I think that, you know, let's like think back just on the conversation we were having about the so-called Stop Woke Act. You know, obviously you have uh, officials uh, throughout the, the country who don't believe that interrogating and investigating a person's abuse of people's human rights in the past, that that's, that that's important in terms of being a police officer. Or maybe they think that maybe they want someone like that, because why are these people continuing to get jobs? You know, we see that uh, supposedly there's a, a shortage or a more difficulty in recruiting police officers now, you know, that they've it's been kind of this blue flu thing after George Floyd. 
uh, police officers don't want to, you know, be charged for the, their brutality, for their murder of people. And so, you know, maybe these, these uh, public officials, they believe that in order to hire someone, they have to hire someone with this, this kind of um, more than checkered path. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty hideous path of, of violence of people, against people. Definitely. You know, I'm having a look around the website of the uh, Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. They have a piece on here that says Mississippi now leads the world in mass incarceration. That That's wild. I'm definitely going to have a look into that later. But, you know, another thing that I wanted to note is that um, uh, according to this truth out piece is that Dobbins has been replaced with Charles Henderson as interim police chief. But Henderson is also named as a defendant in this lawsuit and also has a reputation in Lexington. Um, uh, among uh, the, the th- uh, allegations against him is uh, threatening to kill a local resident for being uh, outside at night and uh, targeting him for arrest. Uh, more than a dozen women have reported that he propositioned them pr- uh, for sex and then uh, wrote them a ticket or arrested them if they refused. And so, I mean, this is just insanity that, that people really have to uh, live through this. And this is happening in a small town, a mostly black town, I believe 85 percent, according to what I'm seeing here in the South and a neglected part of the country. And I think you're right, uh, uh, Esther, that this likely wouldn't be talked about if it wasn't for this lawsuit. And speaking of uh, a racist policing, uh, staying in the South, or I suppose moving up to the Mid-South, um, I'm sure we've all seen this uh, uh, video that's released from Arkansas of these police just brutally beating this man as he lay on the ground. There's at least three cops, one of them striking him in the head. At one point, uh, he looks to knee him in the head. Uh, Another uh, officer kneeing him in the body very hard and another just sort of uh, holding him down seemingly. I mean, it's it's just incredible. And I believe that there may have been some action taken against these officers. But uh, what's I think the worst thing about this, um, Esther, is that these are not sort of special cases, right? These are not rogue officers. It's not just, it's not a bad apple situation. Is that when we talk about policing in the United States, this is a regular occurrence. It isn't always caught on camera and you don't always have a smoking gun like they have with Dobbins with him, you know, slinging around all this offensive language, but this is inherent to the policing institution of police. And uh, that should be no surprise when we remember that police as an institution arise out of slavery itself. So they have always served uh, uh, in Um, They've always been in service to white supremacy and to capital. That is a part of the nature of uh, uh, policing itself. And as such, um, although these images are always shocking, I mean, when you remember that this is literally why the police exist, Esther, for me, at least, it's hardly surprising. Right. So, you know, the other thing about Dobbins is that you know, he in his past, he also had an incident where he was abusive toward a white woman because she had a biracial child. And during the whole case, when because she, she actually brought a lawsuit a, a, about her treatment, that the uh, it was pretty much admitted openly that Dobbins targeted her because she had been in a relationship with a black man. 
also, you know, when you think about a lot of these cases of these mass shootings, you know, the 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 perpetrator, if it was a, a white man, had some issue around, you know, uh, white women having relationships with black men. And so this is, you know, you're talking about like sounding like it's from another time, you know, all of these cases have that ring to it, right? Because this is, you know, we just talked about, you know, the the exoneration of the woman who who told lies about Emmett Till and, uh, you know, all these so many horrific cases of lynching that has something to do with a white woman telling a lie about a black man or 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 some some actual relationship being cast in another light. So so the black man could be targeted, um, you know, tortured and in many cases lynched and killed. So uh, this this is, you know, you know, definitely we have to continue the movement for black lives. We have to continue the movement around to defund the police. We can't allow them just like they have taken this whole issue around wokeism, you know, how they co-opted that word and, and tried to tarnish it. We can't let them take away the movement to, uh, I guess some people call it community control of the police. We can't, we can't allow the movement to die just because they want to take it away from us and 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 tarnish it and call it something other than what it was, which is a movement against killer cops and a movement that says that these people have to be held accountable for, for murdering, for torturing, for people for making their lives miserable, like in this little town, you know, constantly ticketing people, harassing people, you know. Uh, you know, if you, if you get too many tickets, that can just that can just disrupt your whole life. You know, like it can be uh, another form of of torture because you're you're basically not able to pay these tickets. They double, they triple, and it can mean you're not being able to feed yourself or feed your family or pay your rent or being evicted. Who knows that all the consequences of this type of of harassment that's not lethal. Uh, with a lethal weapon or, or being beaten, but it, it can just totally disrupt your whole life. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Esther Ivirum is here. And switching gears a little bit, Esther, I wanted to talk about this uh, recent attack of the Israeli occupation forces when they raided the offices of six Palestinian civil society organizations, uh, namely uh, Al-Haq, a prisoner advocacy group, uh, excuse me, Al-Haq uh, Adamir, which is a prison advocacy group, uh, Bassan Center for Human Rights, uh, Defense for Children International Palestine, Union of Agricultural Work Committees, and Union of Palestinian 
Union Women's Committees. And uh, they've basically been under almost constant threat since 2001 when Israel designated them as terrorist organizations. And first thing I want to say that if, if you live in the United States, these are your tax dollars at work. Um, you know, the U.S. funds uh, Israeli terror against the people of Palestine uh, to the tune of three and four billion dollars every year. Uh, but I'm wondering your top line thoughts uh, about this, Esther, as it's clear that, um, you know, this this apartheid reality that the Palestinian people uh, live through day in and day out and have for generations. Um, it doesn't just stop there. It also extends to any group or institution that seeks to aid them or even tell the reality of their situation. Yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to remember uh, this speech by Martin Luther King where he, I think it's known as the how long, not long, because when I look at uh, what is happening in Israel, when I look at what is happening in Ukraine, uh, in Taiwan, I look at, you know, and these are the, the three places that uh, Michael Pyle called what the, the lighthouses of liberty or something like that. But, you know, in Israel in particular, this apartheid state, uh, people may be offended if I call it a neo-fascist state, but I have to really look at the material conditions on the ground. And when you have a situation where human rights organizations, where, where number one, you know, we're talking about uh, settler colonialism, we're talking about the Nakba, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people killed and displaced uh, from their land. Uh, we're talking about this uh, more than 70 years of occupation. And 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 this, why do they get to own these words? You know what I mean? Um, isn't what's happening to what's happened to the uh, the Palestinian people genocide? Isn't that genocide? I mean, how come uh, only certain people get to use and describe what that is? And so these attacks on the human rights organizations, that are part of the legitimate apparatus of resistance for Palestinian people. This is just this is the latest in this ramped up, um, these ramped up actions by this apartheid neo-fascist state. I mean, uh, this is coming right after Gaza was attacked, and we had, I think at last count, more than 40 children killed uh, during these attacks when you had teenagers, uh, some of those young people, uh, engaging in acts of resistance, or some of them were just like sitting by the graveyard of their grandfather in a cemetery, and they were blown to bits. I mean, this is a outrageous, barbaric situation for people to be living under in, in Gaza, where it's already uninhabitable. You know, there was some time date given for when it would become uninhabitable, but we know that it's uninhabitable already if people don't have clean drinking water, the sewage system has been bombed. You know, you can't even be in your residential home without it being bombed, uh, where press has been bombed. They just murdered Shireen, um, uh, the journalist. And so, you know, I, I just kept going back to the speech, you know, King, how long, not long, because every week there's a new outrage and there's something, you know, that makes you want to holler. Um, and you know, we just want, I just want to figure out, you know, what we can do to consistently, um, you know, give voice to the voiceless in Gaza, in Palestine, to consistently tell their stories. I know that's what I, what little I can do as a journalist, but also 
to support the people of Palestine in their righteous uh, resistance against Israeli apartheid. So I guess that's a long top line thought, but I can't help but think about the, the connection between Ukraine and what's happening there and, and how they're, they're constantly, um, what people have seen uh, using the example of Palestine is the double standard, the, the hypocrisy, and not just hypocrisy, but the cr- criminal complicity in terms of lifting up these regimes that are committing true human rights violations I believe committing genocide against people uh, and and then wanting to hold up other examples that don't even hold water. But, you know, let's look at the true material conditions on the ground, and then we can say what is genocide, what are human rights violations, what is murder. You know, uh, th- there are other cases that we can, we can, we can, you know, we could, you know, fill up hours talking about all the recent cases where, uh, Palestinians have been jailed, killed, um, you know, a sham trial recently convicting a man after he had been in prison for four, for six years and, and tortured into confessing some type of embezzlement of, of, of U.S. dollars. Just, just this out, out, egregious uh, situations that, you know, it wouldn't be tolerated anybody else, anywhere else. And and like you said, these are our tax dollars, and we have to say no, that we're not going to allow our, our tax dollars not only to be used to prop up this criminal military regime, this apartheid regime, but to just com- continue to violate the human rights of the Palestinian people. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the illegitimacy and the criminal complicity that you just mentioned, I think is reflected in the fact that in November, the Intercept, uh, 972 Magazine, and Local Call uh, all got together and published an investigation into this classified dossier that was prepared by Israeli and, uh, the Israeli intelligence agency Shin Bet that was used to justify uh, the actions against these organizations. And of course, the investigation found that there was no proof to these claims that these organizations were in any way uh, uh, working in, in, you know, in, in, uh, to advance the uh, popular front for the liberation of Palestine uh, agenda. But I mean, honestly, even if they were just, to, you know, to be uh, uh, operating to advance the, the call for human rights of the Palestinian people, Israel considers that terrorism. But even though this report exposed that there was no claim behind, no proof behind Israel's claims, and the document was sent to European diplomats in May, the EU, which had suspended funding to Al-Haq and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, backtracked in June of 2022 of this year, just a few months ago, and announced that they would resume funding. So it seems to me that not just it's our tax dollars uh, that are going to the repression and ethnic cleansing and, and I agree, genocide of the Palestinian people, but it's also the tax dollars and the complicity of European nations that Okay, when they're presented with evidence, they have no choice but to backtrack on their uh, punishment of Palestine because, you know, at at the U.S.'s bidding. But honestly, they know that Israel has no standing in any of this. And all it would take 
to save Palestinian people's lives is for one European nation, two, to stand up and say, nope, not going along with this. But it seems like we have to move heaven and earth, Esther, to get them to even move toward the slightest public uh, acknowledgement that, okay, maybe, maybe we shouldn't support Israel in every single thing they do. Real quick before you get into that, Esther, we have a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Hello. Uh, well, I want to talk about uh, Israel and the Palestinian conflict and also to commend you uh, and Jackie and your host for the greatest uh, with the latest. And I'm, I'm hoping that you will uh, be around for a long time, but you know the climate here. So I'm praying that you will stay here for us. But anyway, uh, I'm going back to the... Uh, indispensable Noam Chomsky here. I don't want to quote him too much, but he's been right on a lot of things. And he says uh, years ago that if Israel, this was a, uh, you know, hypothetical, were located in the middle of Australia, nobody would give a damn about it. It's a geostrategic location as an outpost for Western uh, intervention. And I'd like to ask your guest, that's a big picture part, not the, the smaller things. I really feel for the people that are being killed and, you know, um, you know, whatever in the country. So I'll leave it at that. And I hope you guys are around for a much longer time than people, you know, because right now people are so uncertain. I'm just hoping you'll be here. You guys have a great one. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Definitely appreciate all your support of the show. Uh, Esther, your thoughts? I, I don't really have much to to add about uh, what the caller said. I, I, I do know that, that um, you know, you can even think that you can even think of Australia as an outpost of, of U.S. imperialism. I mean, after all, it was settled by or, or invaded by the English and initially set up, I believe, as a prisoner colony. And the indigenous people there have suffered the same, if not worse, fate than the Palestinians and the Native Americans here in this country, and um, the 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 you know wiping out of their you know uh, indigenous ways, their culture uh, for a while, the kidnapping of their children and and the uh, you know abuse of of women and girls uh, in that process. So you know, in a way. I don't want to. I don't want to say that nobody would care about it. it. Would just be. It would just be operating in a different way, and you can see that. Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's uh, it's true that when we talk about countries like Australia, that uh, you know itself very much a settler colony in the way that Israel is. It's, it's a junior partner of U.S. imperialism, and it's also true that uh, uh, Israel is very uh, stre- geostrategically important uh, to the United States. It, it's sort of a, an outpost of uh, Western imperialism and is there as sort of a guard dog in the region for Washington's interests. And see, you know, even in thinking about this, I feel like it's another example of how we are impacted by U.S. imperialism because the uh, the money that's going to uh, uh, support the Israeli apartheid regime, just like all the billions of dollars that are going uh, to Ukraine, is being money that's taken away from us in a particularly uh, economically vulnerable time in the United States at a time when the capitalist system is in decline and 
and its contradictions are being felt all across the globe, including here in terms of the rise in prices, uh, uh, the rise in the cost of living, the rise in the cost of food, the rise in the cost of gas and, and all these sorts of things. But instead of giving all those billions of dollars to that, instead of actually supporting and giving uh, the money and resources to the people of this country, when they tell us that they care so much about us, um, all of that is going to war and destruction and bloodshed and suffering and repression and oppression and exploitation. And it is certainly part and parcel of the uh, uh, ongoing uh, genocidal process against the Palestinian people. The U.S. Uh, doesn't support the uh, 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 the Israeli state because it, you know, has some uh, deep uh, spiritual ideological affinity uh, for its mission. No, it uh, serves a purpose. And therefore, uh, the U.S. government is more than willing to uh, uh, give whatever is necessary in order to keep that going. For the U.S to lose uh, Israel as an outpost of imperialism, I think would be quite a blow to uh, uh, the desires of uh, uh, the ruling class in this country in that part of the world. And so in that way, and that's just one way that I think the suffering of the Palestinian people is directly connected to our conditions here in the U.S. And that's why I always say it's so important for us to really have an international perspective on what's happening uh, across the globe, because in the United States, we're taught that the rest of the world revolves around us and anything else that's happening on earth is basically incidental and disconnected and things like that. And that uh, we shouldn't be bothered even thinking about it, but taking that kind of attitude is actually in a way sort of ignoring how it impacts us negatively as well. And that's what I think we uh, got you back here. We got a few minutes left, but just wanted to kick it to you for any other thoughts you may have. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, sorry we got disconnected. I, I could hear you, though, but um, I wanted to uh, point out that, uh, you know, I I get so, uh, I'm so through with um, people contacting me in any way to asking me to give money to Ukraine. And uh, one of the commercials we see a lot shows, you, you know, to, you know, support Ukrainian children. And the thing is, the whole global South has seen the hypocrisy in what the U.S. is saying about Ukraine and and uh, supporting what is a very authoritarian um, regime there. And then looking at that, comparing it to Israel and its treatment of the Palestinian people. I think even an official from South Africa brought that up in, a, in an official meeting with the U.S. And I want to uh, look uh, tell people about the case of uh, I'm looking at Amnesty International. And they're talking about a Palestinian prisoner arrested as a child, Ahmad Manasra, still in prison despite worsening mental health. I just wanted to bring that up because he's 20 years old now, but he was arrested when he was 13 years old and convicted, even though they, they, they realized, they, they said in the case that he had nothing to do with, uh, he was a convicted of attempted murder uh, in 2016, even though they know that he had nothing to do with the stabbing and injury of two Israeli citizens in an illegal Israeli settlement in occupied East Jerusalem. Even though they know he had nothing to do with uh, the, the, the stabbings, he's been in jail for seven years and he's uh, deteriorated in mental health. And so this is a young person, um, a child who's now a young man 
who deteriorated in mental health. Now he is uh, subjected to, he's been subjected to torture, to confinement, prolonged solitary confinement, uh, beaten beatings. And so I would just like them to remember Ahmad Manasra. Anytime someone talks to you about Ukrainian children, um, and not that I'm, I want anyone mistreated or hurt or, or anything. I just want them to remember him, all the children in Yemen, all the children uh, killed, murdered, starved in Yemen, uh, and that our criminal complicity in their torture. Absolutely. And I don't think it can be overstated just how much children specifically suffer in Palestine from just that kind of violence, as you note, Esther. And I mean, it was a large number of children that were also uh, hurt in this latest bombing campaign as well. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Esther Rivera, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.